Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Many of you have been listening to me say those introductory words for a few years now. What you may not know is that before I started hosting the Quillette Podcast, I had my own podcast called Wrong Speak, which I co-hosted with sex neuroscientist, writer, and fellow Torontonian Deborah So. As many listeners pointed out at the time, Deborah had a lot more star potential than me, but I like to fire back that there's no shame in playing the role of Art Garfunkel to Paul Simon or John Oates to Daryl Hall. Every star needs a sidekick. Sure enough, Deborah So has become something of an intellectual celebrity in recent years, thanks to her popular columns in the Globe and Mail newspaper and her appearances on Joe Rogan and Bill Maher. And now she's out with a book, published by Simon & Schuster, called The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society. It's full of all sorts of controversial arguments, or at least what passes for controversial in 2020. Like that biology is real, that there are two sexes, and that sex isn't a spectrum. And she even suggests that young children who suddenly claim that they're trans shouldn't instantly be affirmed in their beliefs. Deborah So has a PhD from York University, where her thesis was titled Functional and Structural Neuroimaging of Paraphilic Hypersexuality in Men. She tweets about that and much more besides at Dr. Deborah So. This week, she spoke to me by Skype for the Quillette podcast. Here are excerpts from our conversation. We did a podcast together, but that doesn't mean I'm going to not ask tough questions. And so my first question is, how did you become such a good writer? Oh, thank you, John. <laughs> the questions will get tougher, I promise. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I've just always loved to write, even before I became a journalist. Like Since I was very young, I loved to read. It has been a dream of mine to do a book since I was literally five or six years old. So I thought I would do a book when I was retired, when I had finished my stint as a, an academic scientist, that maybe I would do a book one day. And then to have the opportunity to do it now was just incredible. Speaking of your early days, there was a really interesting review of your book on, I think it was Amazon or Goodreads. He described how, by his recollection, he was in your small group social psychology class. And he described how back then the teacher had a very strong ideological view of things and that you were one of the few people in the class who pushed back. Does that memory register with you? <laughs> it does, actually. And uh, it's crazy because at that point, so I was very young, um, but at that point, even that ideology was already starting to make itself known. What is that ideology? Well, gender ideology, I suppose. So as much as I try not to use that term, because that, that term, I think, can alienate some people or it, or it just turns people off from the conversation. But basically, ideas about gender and human sexuality that are not based in fact or science. And I've always been very outspoken, so... I guess that was the, the early roots of what I'm doing now in terms of pushing back against these falsities that really are starting to take over, not just in the academy, but they've now reached the mainstream as well. And they're affecting the way that people talk and think about these issues 
in their day-to-day lives. And that was really my reason for wanting to write The End of Gender, because I think it's really important for people who are in the field or those of us who have left. I'm in the position now as a journalist where I can actually speak accurately and write accurately about the science without having to worry about my institution potentially punishing me for it. This interview comes at an interesting time for Quillette because we just took on a new managing editor. His name is Colin Wright. I think you might know him from his academic work and from Twitter, who, like you, PhD, he studied evolutionary psychology. And he described this, I'm going to use the term binary because I think it fits here, described this binary choice he had to make that he could stay in academia and toe a very particular line when it came to talking about gender. Or he could go into journalism or other ventures where he could speak more honestly. Was that a choice that you felt that you had to make when you finished your PhD at York? Absolutely. So I think it's actually pretty sad now that that someone like myself or Colin, that we have more freedom to say the truth and speak to the science as journalists than we would have being academic scientists. So for myself, my reason for for making the change into journalism was because definitely I noticed in the last few years of my PhD that the climate of academia had changed. There were certain topics that I was finding my colleagues were avoiding that you couldn't talk about, you couldn't research, even though they were very important. And one area in particular pertained to gender transitioning in children. And at the time, pretty much all of the mainstream news coverage suggested that the best way for these kids, so these kids with gender dysphoria, they would say to their parents, they were born in the wrong body, you know, God made a mistake, um, that they wanted to live as the opposite sex. And all of the coverage was saying that the best way forward for these kids would be for them to transition uh, at an earlier age. Um, But from a scientific perspective, all of the research literature shows that the vast majority of these kids will desist by puberty. So they will outgrow those feelings of gender dysphoria. They're more likely to grow up to be gay in adulthood and not be transgender. And so I wrote an op-ed about this and uh, I waited about six months to publish it because I knew there was going to be backlash. And at the time I had also planned to stay in academia. Um, And I asked a number of my mentors and colleagues what they thought I should do. And they were very supportive of me. Um, And I, I, at the time I asked one of my mentors, should I wait until I have tenure? And he said, tenure is not going to protect you. So that really sealed my decision. And I talk a bit more about in the book about my experience in terms of, you know, my thought process and also what happened when the, when the op-ed did come out. But since making that decision, I'm, I'm so much happier. I mean, it's really unfortunate, but when I look back and when I see what's happened in the last few months, even the last few years, things have gotten so much worse, much worse than I ever thought they would be. So I never regret that decision. It was a difficult decision to make. And I am, I miss being a sex researcher, but at the same time, I feel like this was the better choice for me. What's interesting about your research is, as I mentioned when I cited the title of your PhD thesis, you actually looked at brain scans of people. And so you have more than a passing familiarity with the way brain structure can can differ between people, including between men and women. Uh, is that something that affected the way you approach this issue? Well, as a sex researcher, you deal with hate from all sides. It's been historically coming from the political right. And that's not to say that all right-leaning people have an issue with sex research. But 
historically that has been the case. And sex researchers, I think, are used to dealing with that sort of interference. Now that is coming from the political left, because most sex researchers are liberal, and I would still consider myself to be a liberal. When it's coming from your own side, it's almost as though you don't think it's as big of a, an issue or you don't know how to fight it as much as when it's coming from the opposite side. So I think that's why left-leaning science now has become such an issue within sex research. When you choose to go into that field, you know it's stigmatized. You know you're going to be dealing with a lot of controversy over things that should not be controversial, over your research, even when it's legitimate science. And I remember having one conversation with one of my PhD supervisors, because at the time, so for my dissertation, I, as, you were sa as you said, I was using brain imaging to better understand paraphilic hypersexuality. So essentially, these are individuals who their sexual behaviors are excessive. And in addition to that, they're very kinky. So I, I remember saying to my supervisor, you know, there are certain things I, I'm concerned, you know, if I find this, people are going to get upset at me. And he said to me, you need to design your study and report what you find, and that's that. And don't worry about what you find. Don't worry about who's going to be upset by it. Don't worry about what the public response is going to be. So that really shaped me in terms of how I approached doing my research. Um, I'm forever grateful for that conversation. And, and also as how I approach things as a journalist now. And I'm really actually disgusted at the scientists who have decided to take on the activist mission, because activism has no place in science. If you are a good scientist and you're doing the scientific method correctly, it doesn't matter what your politics are. And you should never know what you're going to find with your study before you do it. If that's the case and you, you can predict what you're going to find or you know what you're going to find. I mean, you can have a hypothesis, but that's not what we're seeing now. We're seeing with certain areas of research, and particularly, say, with brain differences between men and women, say, there are studies now coming out that have been, should I say, engineered to find a particular finding. And that, to me, is there's, there's no point in doing that kind of research, especially when you are using brain imaging techniques. A, a single study can cost upwards of tens of thousands of dollars. It's very expensive. It's, it's incredible technology. But those resources could be better put toward other studies that would actually be useful in helping us understand who we are as human beings. One thing that's interesting, which I hadn't realized until now, was that, I'm not sure if he was an advisor or he sat on your PhD committee, a famous Canadian sex researcher, sexologist named James Cantor, who many listeners will know of because he's been on this podcast. And I interviewed him in his Toronto office an incredibly intelligent and humane individual. And one thing he told me is that he sees a lot of trans people through his practice. He doesn't do transition work per se, but he deals with people who have kinks. And that's, that's apparently a term that, that is used widely in the field. It's not just slang. And he said something so interesting to me. He said that he sees so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of kinks. But he said the central question that a lot of people have for him is, does this thing I have make me unlovable? And it was such a sad thing to hear, but it does make sense. And it also, when he told me that, it made me compassionate to some extent for people who come off as extremely militant when they put forward their ideas about they're really women or they're really men and biology is a myth and all this nonsense. They're creating a set of facts or beliefs that help them get through the idea that maybe what they have inside them does make them unlovable. I felt like when I looked at your book, you had a very humane approach. Do you agree with James about that? I do. And I, so I should say that James Cantor was actually one of my PhD supervisors. And uh, I do agree with that. And it's funny because when I was a columnist for 
uh, a very prominent men's magazine. That was so I was a sex columnist and I would uh, write about new sex research and I would. Well, let's say the name. It was Playboy magazine. And you know what? It's like people are. You wrote fantastic articles for Playboy. Yeah, I have no issue saying I wrote for Playboy. I just, you know, I don't, I don't want to name drop it. Essentially, that's what it is. But so when I when I was writing that weekly column. The most common question I would get from people, because I was always, I'm always happy to hear from people. Even now, if you want to tell me what you think of the book, I'm happy to hear about it. Um, and people have been letting me know. But when I was, you know, doing my weekly column, so many people would reach out, and the most common question I would get was, "Is this normal? I like this thing. Is this normal?" And as a former sex researcher who's specialized in studying paraphilias, which are unusual sexual preferences, that was also one of the most common questions I would get from the people that I would talk to. And it, it does, for me, I always tell people that I'm, I'm not kinky. I'm actually probably the complete opposite of what people would expect based on the work that I do and that I'm you know, very boring in my own sex life. It helps you understand a little bit more and, and empathize. And so I, I think with the book, that was my, my one of my biggest concerns was that I, I definitely didn't want anything in it to be used to hold back rights for particular groups. I didn't want people to use that information to discriminate against people. So I, I did my best to make that very clear in the book. It's funny because in terms of the feedback I've been getting from people who have read it, they say to me that they were actually worried at first that the book was going to be something totally unhinged. I don't know why they would have thought that, but they thought it was going to be some sort of tirade or that I was going to be rude about particular groups or whatever. But they said, no, you were really humane and, and it was very reasonable. And I learned a lot and the science was very solid. So, you know, I, I have all the citations. So if, if you want to look up and learn more about it, you can. I mean, that was the other thing I should say. This is a bit of a tangent, but um, I would get so many questions from parents asking me about what resources they can use to help fight this ideology in their kids' education. Because now kids are being taught things like there's no such thing as boys and girls or that you, you choose your gender or that people are gender fluid. So um, that's in the book. That's why I listed all these citations. So you can go to the administration and say, you tell me that gender is a spectrum or that biological sex doesn't exist. Well, look at these studies. One of your research projects is you investigated, I think they're called furries, people who have a kink that involves dressing up in these large furry outfits. Sounds like you were completely objective when you came to that subject. Well, that was part of what drew me to the work because I felt that because, well, number one, it was my own fascination, I guess, or my own interest because I, I like to understand people who are different from myself. But also I felt coming into it that I am objective, so I'm not. I think if you are part of a particular group, you can do your best to be objective, but I, I just felt I brought a different perspective because I wasn't part of that community or really any of these communities that I was studying. Did, did you hear from furries? I think that's what they're yes. called. Did you hear from them after and say, you got us right or you didn't get us right? Did you Were you critiqued? They're so nice. They're so cute. I just went to this event one weekend here in Toronto, and I really didn't know whether they were going to let me in or not because I literally showed up in my usual outfit, which is jeans and a crop top. And they, they let me in. I wasn't dressed up or anything. And I just wanted to understand is this sexually motivated? And I came away after spending an entire day there. You know, I wrote about this. It was it was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. And then from there, Harper's Magazine picked it up and ran that in its, I think it was February 2015 issue. So uh, I was just curious to see, is this a sexual thing? And I don't think it is. I mean, I think sex may be part of it, but sex is a part of life for everybody. And I, what I found was that for these kids, because they were predominantly teenagers, and a lot of them were gay boys, they're just there to experiment with their identity. And really, a lot of them just want to play video games and hang out with their friends, just like every other teenager. 
How did they respond? Oh, the feedback I got was very positive. The way they are portrayed in, say, television or, or pretty much anywhere at that time was that it's very sexual, that they are a deviant population or something like that. Like, it's, it was just so unfair. I didn't know going into it what the truth was. But no, it's not, it's not like that at all. And I think they appreciated someone, an outsider coming in and, and giving a voice to the community in that way. There have been more studies since then that have come out. But yeah, at the time, there was really nothing in terms of the research literature. Do you regret not at least wearing like a Smurf costume? When you showed up, was it insensitive that you were non-furry? I mean, a Smurf costume wouldn't technically be a fursuit because these kids, they spent a lot of time and thought into designing their outfits. I'm really glad that you're asking me these questions because I haven't gotten to talk about furries in a while and I feel it's important. But it's a hipster thing, right? Like it's like sort of a cottage industry because these aren't mass produced items, right? They're made by Right, they're, They're custom made, but I wouldn't say hipster. They're more like nerdy kids, which I love nerds because I'm, you know, I'm a nerd. How would I describe it? It's a different feel. I would say it's almost like your board gaming friends. Like that's, that's more of the, the vibe I got when I was there. People sometimes think these are like, they go and they put on a mascot costume. That's not what it is. They put a lot of thought into designing it. And the way the fursuit looks is, is very specific to, you know, I, I wrote in that piece how if someone say has a scar on their face, maybe they'll, they'll incorporate that into their fursuit. And not all furries have a fursuit because they are quite expensive. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuel Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, Thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. I remember, I think it was maybe 2018, you and I were doing a story together at Laurier University. And we drove down to the Laurier campus, which is a couple hours away from Toronto. This was when we were covering the Lindsay Shepherd. Yeah, I remember. And I remember on the drive there, I was asking you about your research and stuff. And I asked you some really basic questions about the transgender community. And when I look back at the questions I asked you, they must have sounded so naive. Whatever people think of your book, do you find that the average person now you meet, regardless of whether they agree with you, 
is much more educated now about trans issues than they were just a few years ago because of the culture war over the issue? I think it depends I'll meet someone, you know, whatever social situation, and they'll start saying weird things to me like gender's a social construct or that gender's a spectrum or that young children should transition. And these are all things I talk about in the book and how none of these things are true. And and I'm thinking it's crazy because I see all of the fights on Twitter that seem to be very much insignificant are actually these ideas are actually making their way into conversations that people have in the way people think. My kids said to me, just casually, they said to me, oh, I heard J.K. Rowling's a transphobe. Some guy put it on a TikTok video or something. Yeah, something like that. Well, it's also because our public broadcaster in Canada, I, I think you did see this clip. There's like a children's show where the children were on a panel. And I'm not sure why children are on a political panel, but apparently they were. And they were saying that they were calling her a transphobe. And I thought... This is so inappropriate. So I, I think for people who are just minding their business and living their lives and not following this stuff as closely as you and I follow it, they are being told these lies and then they just repeat them because they think that's the truth. So in that way, I think it's worse. I mean, I'm trying to speak to those people with the book, but I'm also speaking to the people who have been following the conversation. They know that that this is not right and they know that that information is being misrepresented. But overall, I think things have gotten much worse in even in, you know, the last year that I've been writing this book, it's gotten so much worse in terms of our understanding of gender. So that's what I'm referring to with the title, because the end of gender can sound as though I'm saying I think that gender is whatever you want it to be and that it's not tethered to biology and it's based purely in self-determination. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the end of gender to me refers and I chose this title because I wanted to capture this idea that all of this misinformation is impeding our ability to understand gender accurately. There's something regressive about it. At my school, I went to a session about transgender issues and a, a woman came in from the school board and apparently she does this full time and uh, someone says well you know how do we know if our kid is trans and it was well they like the color pink and they like playing with dolls and I was like it was like the 1950s well I guess it's not a real boy if they like pink yeah it's crazy to me that the people don't see it that way and that they actually think this is a new or an enlightened way to view things and I think it's also very homophobic to say that a boy who likes dolls because I have seen people send me all kinds of things from either their kids' curriculum or from trainings, the HR things at work. I, I feel so bad for them to have to sit through these things. And there, you know, I've seen images where they will say, you know, if you are a girl, then you like Barbies, and if you are a boy, you like GI Joes, and if you don't, then you must be somewhere in this gender spectrum, or you're not really a boy if you don't like GI Joes, or you're not a girl if you don't like Barbies. And I, and you know, for a lot of these kids who are gender dysphoric or gender atypical, I mean, that's such a hallmark thing of of gay adults. I mean, I grew up in the gay community. All my gay male friends will say, yeah, I played with Barbies when I was a kid. That doesn't mean they're not men. So it, it is very backwards. And especially for young girls. And, you know, I have an entire chapter about this and I talk about rapid onset gender dysphoria and I talk about detransitioners and talk about these young women who, because they feel different, now they're being told by society that they're not really women, that they should be men or that they should be a third gender. And I think that's extremely sexist. And I, I just wish there was more messaging for them. And that's, I'm really hoping to reach them with this book to say, it's okay if you as a, as a girl are not a girly girl, if you're not super feminine, or say you like things that boys like, or 
if you don't feel like you fit in or say you don't like your body after you go through puberty, that's all normal. That's totally normal being a woman, unfortunately. When I was doing research for the book, I was amazed at when I, I listened to interviews of people or people who are non-binary talking about what made them decide to come out as non-binary. And so many of them would say, well, I didn't feel like a woman because I'm strong. And to me, that's so sad. And I don't understand why we aren't saying women are strong. Like, why is there this, why is there the stereotype that women are weak? It's very common for young women now to, the ones who are identifying as male very quickly or who want to transition to live as male or as a different, a third gender, a lot of them, they have autism. A lot of them have sexual trauma. They have other comorbidity like anxiety or eating disorders. And those are issues that should be looked at by a mental health professional. And instead, these young women are being told that the solution is to transition to male or to another gender. And in some cases, you know, they will have a double mastectomy, they will take testosterone. And these have lifelong repercussions. I've had so many parents reach out to me, even since the end of gender has come out. And and it's just, it blows my mind. Just they say to me, I have, there's nothing I can do. My child has decided they're going down this path. And if I say anything, it's considered transphobic and I, I feel so alone. So to any of those parents who are listening, you are not alone and the truth is going to come out. And I, I definitely feel for you. And I know that in a couple of years, it's going to be really, really unfortunate. And people are going to be looking back and saying, how did this happen? There's already lawsuits in uh, in UK and elsewhere. Well, but in, but in Canada... I'm sure you know this, like we have this so-called anti-conversion therapy law that is about to criminalize any therapeutic interventions that seek to understand a child's gender identity instead of right away affirming them. And so there's a difference between conversion therapy for sexual orientation, which I do not support, but conversion therapy, they call it conversion therapy for gender identity when it's not because gender identity in children can change with development and age. So now if this is being criminalized and you can go to prison for up to five years, no therapist is going to be doing any proper assessments, any sort of proper diagnosis, and it's just going to compound the problem in terms of what we're about to see. I think I agree with you in the UK, definitely they're waking up to it, but here in North America, people are still very much in denial about what the truth is and what's about to happen. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high-protein, low-carb solution for people who love their cereal but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only 3 net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, 
But the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash quillette and use the code quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now back to our podcast. James Cantor, who we've been talking about, he said that when it comes to gender dysphoria, he takes a more holistic approach. He, he asks families, what's going on? Has there been trauma? And by the way, he says often it is persistent and real gender dysphoria, and it, he doesn't oppose the idea of, of older kids or, or adults eventually transitioning. Right. And I have, I should say, I have no issue with that either. I have no adults with, with adults and, and kids who, even kids who persist past puberty, although I find now we're in murky territory because again, mental health professionals can't do a proper assessment. So even that group of kids, I, I question, but I, I do think if you have the cognitive maturity to make life altering decisions, that's your business. Research shows that can help, and it's no one's place to to tell you what to do. Well, we had Buck Angel on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I love Buck. <laughs> we love you, Buck. Uh, <laughs> Buck is well; he's in his fifties. He's he's an older member of the trans community, and he says convincingly because he tells his story that you know he transitioned late. He was twenty eight, and he said it basically saved his life. He had persistent, intense dysphoria. He needed to transition. He did transition. He was lucky because the technology was just becoming available. He found a great therapist. Interestingly, he's also someone who on social media and elsewhere pushes back at the idea that every kid who has a passing thought that they're trans, that they should immediately be affirmed. He's a trans person and he's been declared transphobic by more doctrinaire trans activists. Do you hear from trans people, maybe who've read your book or seen your other material, telling you stuff about the debates that happen within the transgender community? I do. I get a number of trans people. I've had lots of trans people reach out to me over the years saying that they agree with me. Uh, I have to say, I love the interview you did with Buck and that you called him the Rosa Parks of porn. Um, <laughs> Because he, sorry, you didn't want to mention Playboy. I didn't want to mention that Buck Angel um, was, for many years, a, a porn actor. Oh, I have no issue and, and, talking you know, about sex, trust me. But no, it's true. He was a porn actor. He doesn't do it anymore, uh, but he, he's done a hundred things. But yeah, he was he was a groundbreaking, uh, I think he was the, the first man with a vagina. I think that was like his claim to fame. Yeah, yeah he's great. I interviewed him for the book, and I'm I'm so thankful that he was willing to speak with me and meet with me because, you know, people say all kinds of crazy things about me that are not true. And so he gave me a chance and he really, he was really w willing to build bridges in that way. And so I am super thankful for that. But yeah, I, I think most activists, the most vocal and aggressive activists in the trans community do not represent most trans people. And I, I don't even think they represent most trans activists. I, I you know, I've had interactions with some trans activists who are actually quite reasonable and lovely. So I, you know, I really want to point that out because I think for people who are following this and following the culture war, they look at the activists who are the most outspoken, who are, are demanding, in some cases, some, I think, unreasonable things. 
And those demands do not represent most trans people. And I think most trans people are actually quite horrified that this is what activists and allies, I mean, my issue also is with the so-called allies who are not even trans themselves, but who've decided to take on this mission for whatever reason, that how can they speak for the community when they are not even part of the community, when they get mad at scientists who are not trans doing research on gender dysphoria? It's, it's really ridiculous. On Facebook, the most militant trans activists or allies, I guess you could call them, are the, the aunts and uncles who want to be the cool aunt and uncle who heard four days ago that their 12-year-old niece or nephew is trans. And man, you should see the rainbow emoticons <laughs> on those Facebook pages. And they, they, they have the fervor of the converted. They can be really mean. The way they come after those of us who talk about desistance. Because they take it as a personal attack on, on, on their niece or nephew or kid. Like, they, they take it in personal terms. I guess so. But some of the, you know, the, it's such an extreme thing. And it's also the medical professionals, too. Some of them are really nasty to us. And the truth is going to come out about that. And, and what I think, what I see happening in a few years is they're going to say, oh, either well, we had no idea this was, was going to happen, or they're just going to pretend as though, well, it's not a big deal. But, you know, you see this with the guidelines there was one medical organization that changed the guidelines around, say, puberty blockers. They went from saying that puberty blockers are reversible to now saying that we don't know the long-term effects. Deborah So is the author of The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so much, John, and thank you so much for all of your support over the years. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.